Good morning. It's good to be with you again. We're going to go on with Isaiah chapter 6. Last week we, we um, introduced the whole concept of worship and what worship is. We started out, worship is knowing. Let me remind you of the text just to refresh your memories, or maybe you weren't here. Isaiah 6, 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Significant because transition between kings introduced lots of uncertainty into their lives of that day. I saw the Lord. Adonai is the word. The sovereign of all things. The king par excellence. The one who has no rivals. That's the way God revealed himself to Isaiah in this season of uncertainty. And he was sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, these brilliant, angelic beings, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The only response these angelic beings as they looked on Adonai is, There's nobody like you. There is no king, no sovereign like you. The earth it takes to contain your glory, for the whole earth is full of your glory. And we didn't even look at this verse 4 last week. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who was calling out while the temple was filling with smoke. This presence of God rocked the house. <laughs> the strongest, most significant place is the threshold, the, the foundation of the thresholds trembled. What we're going to see this morning then is the response to this vision that Isaiah had. We're going to see Isaiah's response, and then we're going to see the response to his response, and then we're going to see the response to the response to the response, all right? So that'll let you know where we're going. You can track, track where we're at as we go along here. But first of all, we're going to get a glimpse of Isaiah's response to this vision of the divine and we're going to go from worship is knowing as he last week recognized Adonai and, and who he was and the, and the certainty that provides in the midst of all the uncertainty that they were experiencing as a nation. But his response is different, summed up in a single word, woe is me. Worship is knowing, but worship is woeing. It's a passionate cry of despair. My simple wor words would be, I am in deep weeds. Big trouble. The New Living Translation said it this way, It's all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. That was Isaiah's response in verse 5. He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A passionate cry of despair was Isaiah's response to this vision of God that he had seen. He recognized along with the seraphim, that there's nobody like this God. Nobody measures up. And as Isaiah saw that, this, this, this 
awareness within him became very personal. I'm in big trouble because I don't measure up to him. There's no way that I can. I'm ruined. I'm doomed. It's not an uncommon response when we find ourselves in the presence of God. You'll find it repeated throughout Scripture. Remember the prodigal son as he came home and encountered his father? It was an acknowledgement of woe. Father, I have sinned in heaven and in your sight. It was a woe moment for the prodigal. In Luke chapter 18, we find two men headed into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and he had all sorts of ways. There was no woe in his heart. He had all sorts of reasons that he should be accepted before God, things that he did do and things that he didn't do, as opposed to the publican, the old tax collector, the outcast. He couldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. He was having a woe moment, and instead he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Interesting, if you're into the English, the sinner, not a sinner, the sinner. As far as he was concerned, he was the worst. Well, you say, that's not really fair. I don't know. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners, remember? That's standing in woe before God, recognizing that he is holy and I am not. And that's where he started. Did you notice Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Personal responsibility before God. God, I don't measure up with you. (laughs) On my own, I'm not like you, God. And he expands it out. And by the way, I live among a people of unclean lips. We're all in the same boat. None of us measure up. To your holiness, God. We sing about that with some regularity, but you know the danger is we kind of move past those words pretty easily, don't we? I mean, they come out here, but we haven't really processed them here, and, and often they're far from our heart. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch. That's a woe moment. An expl- an exp- of, God, I'm not like you. I need your grace. There's another one we're going to sing an updated version of here in just a little bit. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? How's that next part go, that next line? Would he devote that sacred head for such a, a worm as I? That's a biblical concept. You get back into your Psalms. We changed it because we didn't like this worm theology business, but I'm just telling you, that's a woe cry by the hymnist. It's a cry of woe. You see, we sing those things, but we don't relate to them real well because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that what's happened, we've swung our pendulum away 
we've replaced our woe response with, hey, what's up, God? We've lost our reverence in favor of relaxed familiarity. And listen, I, I know all about being a friend of God. We sing about that too. I mean, I'm not saying I know all about it, but I'm familiar with that concept and, and pursue that personally. But even in the midst of that, we've got to stay balanced at, out of respect and reverence for our God. Have you swapped out? Have you lost your, your deep-seated respect and woe before God? I can give you a test, kind of check yourself on this matter. When was the last time you became aware of a sin issue in your life and your heart was grieved? When was the last time you recall being convicted by the Spirit of God of some manner of disobedience on your part and you humbled yourself and sought His forgiveness? See, if you can't remember the last time, then you've moved from woe to a relaxed familiarity. We've lost track of the holiness of God. Many years ago when our kids were small, I can't remember the details, but one of the boys was in, was in some deep weeds, all right? And I wanted to make sure he felt the impact of this woe moment that he was in before his earthly dad, all right? Decided it was going to be a teaching moment. And so I'm leaning in with all this stuff and really wanting to get, him, get the concept of this down, that, that this, whatever it was that he had done, was inappropriate, was not going to be tolerated, and then thought, well, I'll just get a little, get a little God business in here too, and, and said, son, how do, you, how do you suppose it made God feel when you did that? And I don't know if I'd been talking so long that he'd been planning a response or not, but it didn't take him long, and he fired right back at me. He'll get over it. I have an advanced degree in theology, and I didn't know what to say. Sad part is, while I may never speak those words with my mouth, I'm fearful that I treat him that way with some regularity. I'll do whatever I please in any given set of circumstances, and he'll get over it. That tells me I've lost my woe before God. I've lost track of his holiness. As Isaiah went on, he expanded his thoughts further. He focused on his unclean lips, which seems a little odd to me. You know, when I think about my brokenness, my sinfulness before God, my lips aren't necessarily the thing that come first to mind. I think of a lot of other things <laughs> that might. But Isaiah was familiar with the concept that Jesus would communicate clearly later as he was confronting the Pharisees with some of their external obedience to God when their hearts were far from him. And he had this to say, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. See, it's what comes from the heart, and the heart is manifested through the mouth. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And so in this moment, suddenly in, 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 in front of the holiness of God, Isaiah immediately thinks of how his mouth reflects his heart and he knows his heart. Not like God's. Not on his own. His heart's going his own direction. Wants to do things his own way. If that's all I had to tell you, then, then I'd leave you in that place of deep weeds and big trouble doomed without much hope. But what we see next here before we move into point number three is the response to Isaiah's response. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. A lot of symbolism going on here. Keep in mind that these seraphim were as all angelic creatures there to move at the discretion and the direction of God. And so this intervention that is taking place here on Isaiah's behalf is taking place at the discretion, at, at, at the direction of Adonai, who recognizes the, the position of Isaiah's heart is he is acknowledging his own brokenness here, his sinfulness. He acknowledges that, and what does God do? God intervenes. God intervenes and provides remedy for his brokenness so that his iniquity is taken away, his sin is forgiven, and suddenly that which Isaiah was so impressed by that was separating him from God, it's gone. The way is clear. Now we don't take, I, I, I don't want you going out of here hunting for a seraphine to put a hot coal on your lips. Because what we have is the advantage of like over 2,700 years of God continuing to unfold His plan. And we know that God's intervention on our behalf took place on the cross outside of Jerusalem as Jesus went and suffered and died to make available to us what Isaiah experienced symbolically right there. An intervention of God that allows our sin to be forgiven so that we are no longer left in a place of woe. But we can be reconciled through faith in the person and work of Jesus. You see, we're not left in woe. We might say we are woe no mo, right? <laughs> That's about as creative as I can get, you know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, my. You know, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. You know that name, maybe. You might not know that his mother died when he was young and his father took him to sea where his father was responsible, from, for, responsible for transportation of African people from their homes to the new world where they would be, where they would be serving their lives as slaves. John Newton witnessed that as a boy, grew up in that environment, brutal lifestyle, ultimately captained his own ship in the slave trade until God intervened and he had his own woe moment and eventually wrote that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It is reported that the last words that John Newton spoke were these, 
I am a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. He never lost track of his woe moment, but recognized that what Jesus had done was the only intervention necessary to remove the separation that occurred between him and his God. Left to ourselves, there is no hope. But once Jesus comes into our lives, <laughs> we are not left in that place of woe. Worship is knowing. Worship is woeing. But worship is also going. As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest to you that worship is incomplete without going. That if that response of obedience, because here it comes, it's the response to the response to the response. Isaiah responded with woe. The seraphim responded with God's remedy for his reaction to, to his sinfulness. And now there's one more opportunity, one more response. And that's how Isaiah is going to respond to what it is that God did for him. Worship is going. Struck me on the way over here. I, that's what I love this about God's word. You know, when I, when I drive over alone, I've got an hour and this stuff's just rolling. And, and I'd missed it before. But we've done a lot of stuff here in these few verses, seven verses, a lot of stuff there, just full of stuff, right? And, and Adonai has yet to speak. He's not said a thing. Seraphim have been making racket, and Isaiah's been talking. Adonai has not said a word until now. And it fascinates me once he starts talking the way he does it. For he says in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of Adonai saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? It, it, it's a worthwhile study to just do some wandering around and start making notes of how many times Father, or Son, or Spirit, ask questions. Questions, in, questions invite us into conversation, you know, if you notice that, as opposed to statements. Adonai doesn't start speaking and say, Isaiah, you're going. It's just a conversation that appears, it's in the plural form there, the second part, who will go for us? It appears to be a conversation in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, We've got a situation in Judah. They need to be reminded of the agreement that we have. Who, who are we going to send? Who's going to go for us? Now, just a moment ago, when Isaiah spoke, he was full of woe, right? I mean, it, it doesn't say, I'm speculating that it would have been like the publican. He wouldn't even raise his eyes up. He he had to step away because he was aware of his own brokenness and was downcast and maybe hunkered over in the presence of, of this grand sovereign of all. But when Isaiah hears this question, this invitation, I think his countenance likely changed and it would have went from that cowering before the holiness of God 
to something that would have looked more like that. Hey, God, here I am. Send me, send me. Hey, God, over here, over here. He wanted to make sure that Adonai didn't miss him. Can you imagine to be invited to go on mission for him? Isaiah wanted it. He wanted a part of that. Any sense of that in your heart? To have caught a glimpse of the glory of God, to know that in spite of your own sinfulness, He has made every provision for you and I to be reconciled with Him, and then He invites you and I into service in His kingdom. Any of that kind of passion and enthusiasm to join Him in there. It's a natural response. Expected response. It struck me a little bit. Does it seem strange to you that Isaiah doesn't ask for more details before he volunteers? (laughs) Superintendent used to come out of his office into the study hall where I went to school and he'd say, I need three volunteers, you, you, and you. Come on. There was no waiting. That sounds like a military, right, guys? I was not there, but I've heard that. That's kind of how that happens there. Now Isaiah, he heard this opportunity, this question asked in the presence of deity, and he's got his hand in the air. Got his hand in the air. Here am I. Send me. Didn't ask for details. I don't... What kind of additional information would you have wanted before accepting the mission? Would you, want to, would you want to find out if maybe there was a little wiggle room for some negotiation just in case there was some fine print, you know, that you didn't realize? Would you just maybe? Not Isaiah. Not after what he'd seen and experienced. A glimpse of God, God's intervention, cleansing of his lips. By the way, just a little side note so I don't forget it. I forgot it first service. It's interesting that the focal point of the cleansing comes to his lips and God's going to send him to do what? Speak. (laughs) That's interesting to me. Trust enables us not to have all the information before the mission begins. Trust. Intimate relationship and knowledge. Let me tell you an old story. I was, I was in my teens, late teens probably, so I was old enough to be of some value when things were going on. But I was beginning to get old enough that I wasn't always excited about contributing when I could. You know, you remember how that went? You know, once you got old enough, then you didn't want to anymore. But a bunch of us from church one day went over to Pastor's Ray, Pastor Ray's house. He had this big old two-story farmhouse, and it needed painting in the worst way. When I say that, you know that meant tall ladders, rickety sometimes, clear up into the, the peaks of these roof lines. And, and we tore into it, had a lot of help. It was fun, honestly. We got down to this one section where there was kind of this, this other roof that came into the side of the house. And this section right here, 
um, was tall enough that you, I mean, we stood on the roof, sort of, and got painted all we could reach, but there was one little section up there yet that, that we couldn't reach off our ladder, and it was on this inclined roof. And if you put the ladder up there, I mean, it stood like this, and that wasn't, that's not a good thing with ladders, right? Angles on ladders are not good. My wife will tell you that story, okay? So my dad stood there, and he said, hey, son, throw me that two-by-four. So I threw him up a short two-by-four, and he propped the ladder up and put that under the leg, and it helped, but you still couldn't climb that ladder. Said, I need some more, I need something else. So I looked around, I found another little scrap of wood and I threw it up there and, and, and he straightened that ladder up a little and put, slid that under there. It was getting close, but still not quite right. And he looked around and said, hey, hey, throw me that steel brush there. And I threw that up to him and he took the handle of that steel brush and slid it, the last piece, the third thing underneath that ladder and it was straight up and down. And he said, okay, son, come on up and climb that ladder. And get that last paint, paint it done up there. <laughs> Mind you, I do not recall that it was a question or an invitation. It was a statement. But as best I recall, I didn't hesitate. I didn't negotiate. You know why? Because I knew who was holding the ladder. I knew my dad had hold of the ladder. And if dad's got your ladder, you're going to be okay. And I knew him well enough to know that if, if there was a fall coming, I wouldn't go alone. <laughs> he'd, go, he'd go with me. He'd go with me. That's why guys like Pastor Eddie and I encourage you tirelessly to be tending your relationship with your Heavenly Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit. Because trust, no matter what, Trust no matter what, when the mission is presented to you as an opportunity, it will come as a result of your knowing Him. You won't feel a need to negotiate. You won't, you won't feel a need to have all of, the, all of the details because you know He's got you. And wherever He is, is the place to be. Isaiah had seen God. He experienced God's intervention for his woe. And as a result, his hand was in the air. Today, we can come up with all kinds of reasons, quote unquote reasons, for sidestepping those opportunities. I'm not called. That's not my gift. I've put in my time. That's not convenient. That's not comfortable. Maybe you can think of others. Maybe you, like me, have been guilty of using one that really is just an excuse to say, I don't want to, God. You know, usually these things are so hardwired into our spiritual DNA, these opportunities that come before us. Generally, nobody else is really aware of them. They come to us, unique to us. 
I, taught, I, I did my best to teach you that a few weeks ago as we talked about the cycle of grace. And when we got to number three, the significance that God has, has equipped each of us with. That's what we're talking about here. I wonder if any of us have left our Lord hanging. You know, he posed the question in our presence. Who, who will I send and who will go for us? And we have yet to respond. We just left it hanging. I've been reading a little book by Thomas Kelly, old-time devotional writer. And he had me in sentence two when he said this, deep within us all there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul. Deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a holy place, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we may continually return. I think that's where Isaiah saw Adonai, that amazing hidden sanctuary in his soul. And if you know anything about Isaiah's ministry, you know he probably had to go back there with some regularity to keep going. <laughs> I like that. But I mentioned that to mention this. Late in the book, he, he says the loving presence, those are caps, he, he's using that to refer to God. The loving presence does not burden us equally with all things. You know, we're in the context of these opportunities that are presented to us to join Jesus in his unfolding of the kingdom in the here and now. And he doesn't give us all the same opportunities, but considerately puts on each of us just a few central tasks, a few primaries. Those are my words. As emphatic responsibilities. Some special and unique invitations that come as a response to the response to our response of encountering Adonai. Have you heard him invite you into his kingdom work today? It will be that last step of worship. For worship is knowing, worship is going. Worship is going. That's where we join him. the great adventure of the kingdom that he's invited us to join him in. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to share together. Thank you for your word carefully preserved, inspired infallibly for us. 
Lord, I pray that you will continue your work of drawing us to yourself and helping us to see ourselves in light of your holiness, to experience your intervention and your call. Yeah, they don't all look the same, but the call comes. Lord, help us to respond in obedience as an act of worship. Thank you for the cross. It gets us positioned to know you, to join you. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.